starting in about um, two, ten days. So we need to pray for them, pray for their travel, pray for the staff, pray for the preparation of everyone involved, and that um, those who are the leaders can get done the things they need to get done uh, before they take off. Now, another thing that uh, we ought to be mindful of, and it's a real answer to prayer, those of you who've been coming to to prayer meeting on Tuesday night are aware of this, and that is that National Capital Bible Church, where Dan Ingram is a pastor, has been really in a tight situation because of their meeting place. They have sublet from uh, what used to be the uh, Capitol uh, Seminary and Washington Bible College, they were taken over by Lancaster Bible College three or four, two or three years ago, and they're sort of shutting down their Northern Virginia operation and closing that office as of the 1st of September. So that means that National Capital Bible Church had to find another place to meet, and the rents in Washington, D.C. are not low. Okay, that's that's a u, u, good use of a figure of speech called litotes. Okay, it's like uh, uh, it, it's used several places in Scripture, such as your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. It just means the opposite. Okay, it's rents are not low, which means they're high. And it's been very difficult. In fact, they looked at a place this summer that was 25 miles away, and they were very close to... Uh, entering into a deal when one, it, it became obvious that that wasn't the right place. And then um, it became more and more clear that maybe they should stay right where they are, and they've been negotiating. And just the way the Lord works things out, they were not intentionally using this as a no- negotiation ploy, but they had originally approached the landlords of the building where they are currently meeting, and um, the price was just way out of sight. And by not talking to them any, it's the, the, the landlord wanted to keep them. And so they came back with a price that was pretty close to what they had uh, originally wanted as their low ball, bottom line. This is where we want to, we, we'd really like it to get there, but we don't think that'll be there. And that w- offer was tendered last week. It's a little bit above that, but so it looks really good. And it, and uh, it's not the deal isn't quite done yet, so keep in prayer. But it looks like this is this is going to be it, and they're not going to have to move. They would have lost a couple of families in the move, and who knows what else. So anyway, that's a real answer to prayer. <clears throat> Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear." A clear statement that. When we are dwelling on sin, when we have sinned and we're no longer walking according to the Holy Spirit, then we're out of fellowship. We're no longer abiding in Christ. And as a result, we're not abiding in the Word. And God, we're not walking with the Lord and we need to recover, which means we need to uh, confess sin. That'll be part of our uh, lesson this evening. So we need to take time to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you in prayer tonight, we're uh, thankful for the way you've worked things out for National Capital Bible Church, and even though the deal isn't quite done, it's very, very close, and we're very thankful that uh, you worked in the thinking of the uh, landlords, and they were able to uh, offer a deal that was uh, acceptable and doable, and Father, we continue to pray that you would provide for that congregation, provide for in terms of personnel, and also in terms of their financial resources. Father, we pray for us too as well, thankful that we have this place to meet. We're thankful for the way you provide for our finances, and we look forward to just this continued testimony of how you support the teaching of your word. 
Father, we're thankful that we can come to a church congregation that focuses on the teaching of your word, for that is the center of our spiritual life. It's the center of our worship, for it is the way in which we learn about you, and we learn how to live for you and glorify you and honor you. And now tonight, as we focus on your word, we pray that this will be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, edify us, and challenge us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Almost weekly, I start off with a bank of verses that I uh, repeat over and over again for everybody to to remember. Uh, They come from a mix of scriptures, mostly the Psalms. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Now, why do I use those that grouping of verses? I do it because it focuses us on the importance of the word, that it's the power of the word, it is the word that cleanses us, it is the word that strengthens us. It's not the word plus music, it's not the word plus Uh, fellowship. It's not the word plus entertainment. In fact, in most places today, it's uh, uh, the word almost gets drowned out by the entertainment and the stories and all of the other things that that, that come along. In fact, uh, recently somebody was telling the story about going to church and uh, going someplace on Sunday morning and the music was really good. And unfortunately, there was some guy who stood up and talked for about 20 minutes and just destroyed the whole mood. And the sad thing is, is that that, unfortunately, is what happens and passes for evangelical Christianity in too many places. Well, what we're looking at this morning in one of my favorite passages in a verse that many uh, people memorize as a young Christian in uh, 1 Peter 2.2, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That is uh, part of a sentence that incorporates three verses, actually, in the text. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, but the point, the command, that is embedded in the second verse, and the way it's translated, it just doesn't seem to come across with the oomph, with the power and the um, command the seriousness of a command that is in the Greek. I mean, it's an imperative mood verb, desire. It means to crave the word, long for it, desire it. And so we need to look at this, and as we continue in our progress through through First Peter, uh, we're going to, uh, we need to embed this within the structure of, of First Peter, constantly thinking in terms of, of context. So let me just remind you where we've, uh, where we've come from, where we're going. In First Peter 1, 1 through 2, I want you to pay attention. I'm going to bring out a little point, but it's an important point, especially in the coming weeks. Peter addresses his readers, and he says this is to the pilgrims of the diaspora, uh, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And it's important because there's been debate over the history of Christianity as to the recipients, those to whom Peter's writing. And it's important to understand that these words, the word translated pilgrims, the word translated uh, dispersion or the diaspora, these are technical terms that were used to describe the Jewish uh, community that was no longer living in the land of Israel in Judea and Galilee, and they were scattered. Many of them had been outside of the land for generations since, uh, some since 722 B.C., so for over 700 years they'd been uh, living outside of the land since the northern kingdom of Israel had been defeated by the Assyrians. Southern Kingdom was defeated in 586, and they too were scattered. Some went to Egypt, the vast majority went to Babylon, few stayed in the area of Israel, some went uh, north into Turkey, the area we now know as Turkey. One of the regions in the north-central area of Turkey was Cappadocia. And uh, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia were sort of in the middle of, of, of what is now Turkey. That's where these recipients are living. 
But the important thing to note is they're primarily Jewish background believers. That will be very significant once we get into the next bank of verses in 1 Peter 2, uh, 4, uh, 4 through uh, 11. Now, in the introduction to the epistle, that's in verses 3 through 12. Or, and, and this is important because when you write any good piece of literature... Whatever it is, you are usually you have some sort of introduction. We just had the uh, celebration of our Independence Day on the 4th of July, and that is to commemorate and to remember the signing and the uh, acceptance of the Declaration of Independence, the approval of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. And it starts off with a preamble. And that sets the tone, it sets the theme of what is going to follow. That's what an introduction does. A lot of times when people pick up a book and they see that there's a preface or an introduction, they don't read the preface or introduction, they just skip to chapter one. But in, in an introduction, the author is telling you why he's writing what he's writing and why it's important and and will indicate the kinds of things that you need to pay attention to. And so the introduction is very important. In fact, when I uh, am teaching students how to read, uh, seminary students, Bible college, basically anybody needs to do this, read the introduction of a book, then read the conclusion. Because in the introduction, the writer's going to tell you why he's writing what he's writing and why it's important to pay attention to it. And then... You read the conclusion, and he's going to say, okay, this is what I told you. Now you have a pretty general idea of what the book is all about. Then you can go in and read what's in between the introduction and the conclusion, and it's going to probably make a little more sense to you than if you skip the introduction and just start reading in chapter 1. So in a lot of the epistles, most of the epistles, because they're good literature, they begin with an introduction and they end with a conclusion. And in the introduction, we're introduced to the main ideas that Peter wants us to remember. He's writing to an audience that's going through persecution, tribulation, difficulty, challenges. And a lot of it is because they're Jewish, but they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So they're facing different degrees of opposition and resentment and rejection, even to the point of persecution by Jews in their community, in their family, among their friends, in their synagogue, that rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's writing them to encourage them how to stand fast as Christians, who they are in Christ, what their possessions are, what their privileges are, what God has provided for us so that we can face the, de- the difficulties of life. Now that applies to us, even though we're not Jewish, because we face many of the same kinds of problems in our world. We face difficulties, we face tribulation, we face persecution. We live in a world where there is more and more of sort of a rising opposition to biblical Christianity. You may not be aware of this, but a Civil Rights Act was passed in Iowa in 2007. And part of that act, this information just uh, became known to me yesterday, part of that act including pr- included the statement that they should provide, any place should provide the proper facilities for the public. It didn't define that. In a pamphlet to explain what that meant, the uh, the legislature explained that 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 did not apply to religious institutions, other than as long as the activities that were taking place were religious activities. So that if they had a daycare center or any, I'm quoting this, any public meeting or any meeting open to the public then they would have to provide the appropriate facilities. That is a direct assault on the First Amendment because their interpretation of the act now is that uh, because most churches have services on Sunday morning that are open to the public, that if you're going to have a service on Sunday morning open to the public, then that what they are saying is you need to have 
transgender restrooms and you need to allow anybody who is gender confused to go use the other gender's restroom. It is bad law, and so there is now a lawsuit against them that is trying to engage in a preemptive strike before this is ever uh, ever enforced. My point is that like the... Uh, like the believers that Peter is writing to, we're going to face more and more opposition to uh, enacting what we believe in the public marketplace. But that's what the First Amendment was to guarantee, is the practice of our religious belief in the marketplace. And, and what liberals are doing is they're saying, no, you can't do this in the public marketplace, but you're free to practice what you believe in your church inside those walls. And now what this interpretation of this Iowa law is doing is saying, no, you're not even free to practice it inside the four walls of your church. You have to still conform to what the world outside says the standards are. This is a direct attack on our on our freedoms. That's the kind of thing that they were facing, the kind of thing that we're facing. So the point here is that we need to face these trials by living in light of eternity. And that means that we can rejoice no matter how difficult and uncomfortable the circumstances may be because our love for God enables us to focus on the glories to come. And that idea of glory is an idea that we'll see uh, it runs all through this this epistle that we focus on the future. We're living today in light of eternity. Then after we finished the introduction, we worked our way through this first division of the book, which begins in verse 13 of chapter 1 and goes down through verse 12 of chapter 2. And the main idea there is really set forth in terms of the conduct. You see this word that comes up at the beginning, and it's going to be repeated at the in the last couple of verses, 2, 11, and 12. Again, refer to this idea of conduct, the way a person lives. And this is organized in Peter's thinking, if we think about the big picture here, in terms of six commands. They don't always come across, though, in English as, as commands. And sometimes other words, participles, in the original Greek, are translated as commands, which just leads to confusion because we don't have a clear understanding of what the writer is saying. So let's review what we find. In verses 13 through 14, the command is to rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When is the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's when Jesus Christ returns at the rapture, when he is revealed. Okay, so what happens right after that? We are evaluated in terms of our Christian life at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not to determine whether we go to heaven or we go to the lake of fire. The judgment seat of Christ is for rewards to believers for service during this life. So that first command is to rest your hope fully, but it comes across, the way it's translated is gird up the loins of your mind. But the way it's expressed in the Greek, it's uh, stand firm, uh, rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you by girding up, by being prepared. That's what girding up the loins of your minds mean, being disciplined in your thinking, organized, focused. Second command comes in, Verses 15 through 16, to be holy in all your conduct, which means to live in a way that sets you apart to serve God so that you're living in a way that is consistent with God's thinking and God's commands and uh, you're set apart to him for his service. That's in verses 15 and 16. Then in in verses 17 to 21, the third command is that we're to be holy in all of our uh, the word conduct is used back in verse um, back in verse fifteen, but it's picked up again in um, in seventeen to conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So it returns this idea to how we live. So in in the second command, it has to do with our conduct. 
In the third command, it has to do with our conduct, and that's going to be stated again when we get to the conclusion. So you look for those kinds of repeated words to get the flow of what Peter is saying. He's saying that the spiritual life has to do with how we live. It's not just learning doctrine. It's not just learning the word. It's working it out in terms of application, what we say and what we do. The fourth command impacts what we do with others, and that is to love one another with integrity. And this is uh, verses 22 through 25. Focus on that. It starts off that with a causal participle, because we have purified our souls, which happens when we trust Christ as Savior. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. And at that point, we are cleansed positionally of all sin. We're forgiven uh, positionally of all sin, and we are made new creatures in Christ. We are born again. That's the parallel in verse, three, verse 23, having been born again. And how is this accomplished? It's accomplished by obeying the truth in verse 22. And this obedience of the truth is then connected to being born of an incorruptible seed through the word of God. So there's a parallelism between the truth and the Word of God, which is then further developed, as we'll see, as the gospel that's preached to them. They responded to the gospel through God the Holy Spirit. We're born again. We're made a new person in Christ. We have a new life. God changes us from the inside and gives us a new identity in Christ and gives us eternal life. And because of that, we are to love one another fervently with a pure heart in verse 22. But you can't execute the command unless you understand your new identity. It's like if you were given a contract to go play for the New York Yankees, you would be told that now that you are a member of this ball club, you're going to conduct your life a certain way. It's like being a child, and as you grow up, you're father or your mother says you're a member of this family and other people may do this and they may do that they may live this way or they may live that way but if you're a member of this family this is how you're going to live in other words we're back to that same idea we saw in the second and third commands how we conduct our lives and the specificity here is that it's done through loving one another with integrity that brings us to the end of the first chapter. Now, when you study the Bible, chapter and verse headings sometimes get in the way because it makes us think that there's a whole new section, and it's not. It's just the next point comes along, and it's in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and the command is really, in, as we'll see, is in verse 2, to desire or crave the milk of the Word. Now, in some translations it makes it look as if the command is in verse 1 to put aside all malice. Uh, the ESV translates it that way. But you'll see in the New King James Version, in the New American Standard Version, there's an ING on the end of the word laying aside, and that tells us that it's a participle. It, it modifies a main verb. We'll get into that in a minute. Now, I want you to skip from the end of verse 3. We're going to skip 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, which is almost like a secondary thought. He, he gets uh, sidetracked on, on something important. He lays the groundwork for who these Jewish background believers are. That's why it's, it's important to understand that he's writing to Jewish background believers because we have to properly understand verses 4 through 10. But when we come to verses 11, 12, and then I put 13 up there to show the difference, is that there's a shift. This is really the concluding summary of this section. And we know that from the grammar and from the words that are used. Now, the conclusion, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now, when we read that phrase, that automatically takes us back to the first verse where there's addressed as pilgrims in the diaspora, in the dispersion. So what he's saying there is that 
that in terms of who you are as Christians who are scattered, living in a midst of sometimes a hostile environment, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Again, he's talking about conduct, which is clear from the next verse. He says, having your conduct, that's the same word that he used back in uh, 16, uh, 15 and uh, 17, talking about uh, the, the, the lifestyle, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles isn't a word for unbelievers, as we'll see. Scripture uses the term Gentiles in terms of just meaning non-Jews. It doesn't mean uh, unbelievers. So he's talking to them. They're also living in the midst of a, of a Gentile culture. And maybe this is because as Jews who've accepted Jesus as Messiah, they've been kicked out of the synagogue. And so now they're having to live in a Gentile environment instead of in a more comfortable Jewish environment. So he says, conduct yourselves or live your lives honorably among the Gentiles. And then you see how I've underlined that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the, it, it's a Greek construction. It's not an imperative in terms of its, its basic uh, function, but its, its syntax is to function as an imperative. It's a command. It's not an imperatival verb but it's a, a, a word that is used, a subjunctive that's used with a purpose clause, a, another way of expressing a command. So it concludes with this command that the reason we do all of this, it's summarizing these previous five commands and this sixth command, that we're to, we're to live a certain way in front of the Gentiles so that they can glorify God. Our life is to be a witness a visible testimony to those around us. And he's going to come back to this idea when we get into 1 Peter 3.15. He's going to say, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. If you're living a certain way in front of the Gentiles, then they're going to ask why? And you need to be ready to give an answer for that. So it's all targeted towards this idea of being a physical, uh, spiritual testimony to those around us. And then when you get to verse 13, see, it says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And when we get there, we're going to see that from 13 on, the, the topic changes. He starts talking about submitting to authority in different spheres of life, and the importance of that and why it's important to submit to authority. And he always goes back to the example of Jesus. So obviously when we get to verse 13, he shifts to a different subject matter than what he's covered from uh, 2.13, I mean one thirteen down to 2.12. Okay, now let's pick up what the end of verse of chapter 1, which we talked about a little bit last time. He says in verse 22, because you purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit. That's when they respond to the gospel. He talks about that response to the gospel message a couple of different ways. He says, you, and then in verse 23, he says, you were born again, or you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but uncorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So he calls the word of God that which lives and abides forever. So he's talking about the revelation that God has given. Again, this shows that we should have an extremely high view of the Bible. The Bible is not man's opinion about God. It's not a record of man's experiences with God. The Bible claims to be the unique thinking of God revealed to man, given to man in a way that it uh, is, is overseen by God and protected so that his word is preserved to us. It has power. Now notice, he calls it the word of God. That's the logos. Now, logos is one of those words that has a lot of different shades of meaning. We see its remnants in words like biology and geology, anthropology, that L-O-G-Y at the end means the learning, the memory, uh, remembrance of, uh, or the study of something. It also has the idea of logic. It has the idea of reason or rationality. 
And I want you to notice something. Here it's called, the Word of God is called the Logos. And then when you look at verse 2, when we get there, uh, desire the milk of the... And the word there isn't Logos, it's Logicon. And it's emphasizing the rationality and the logic of the Scripture. So that's one, one reason we take time to go through the Scripture this way, word by word, verse by verse, is to thoroughly understand what God has said to us. So the Word of God, uh, and it, it lives and abides forever. Now this should remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew five seventeen and 18 in talking about the Word. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, the Old Testament was divided by the Jews into three sections, the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then you had the prophets, which covered the what we call the historical books. They referred to the early prophets and the later prophets. And then they had a third division that was just called the writings. But often it was simply the whole of the Old Testament as we know it, the Hebrew Scriptures as Jews know it, that was described as just the Law and the Prophets. So Jesus is talking, remember that when he said this, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the Law of the Prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away. That's just another way of saying, you know, until the universe is destroyed, it creates a new heavens and new earth, but even then it's going to con- the Word of God is going to continue. He said, uh, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. He's talking about the endurance and the eternality of the word, which is what Peter's talking about in, in 1 Peter one twenty three. The word of God lives and abides forever. It indicates that, that dynamic. Now, where we went from this, in verses 24 and 25, Peter quotes, from Isaiah chapter 40, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses uh, 5 and 6. And he's quoting from this section that talks about the permanence of God's Word. Wasn't it interesting that when I finished this two weeks ago, we got down to Isaiah chapter 40, verse, uh, verse uh, 6, and we were talking about, uh, I was going to continue on that, and then Jim Myers covered for me last week when I was on vacation, and his plan was to go through Isaiah 40. So that was important. I just let him teach Isaiah 40, and then I'm moving on. I'm not going to ex- go back over the territory he covered last week, so that, that fit together. It's, it's almost like God has a plan sometimes. But the connection is that the Jews in the Old Testament... We're facing a crisis. In the first part of Isaiah, he's predicting that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the people. And then when that judgment came, Isaiah 40 to 66 is written to comfort the people that God hasn't forgotten them. God still has a plan for them, and God is still going to uh, restore them. Now, they were a people who were taken out of the land in the dispersion, and were scattered among the Babylonians. So they're living in a hostile pagan gent- and a Gentile environment, just as these recipients to the letter uh, to the letter First Peter are. And so I uh, had this quote from uh, Edward Selwyn in his commentary. First Peter summarizes this, and he said, "Every leading thought here in Isaiah 40 fits with what our author of First Peter has been saying." He, too, is addressing readers who are exiled and oppressed, and he has the same message for them, the contrast between the perishability of all mortal things, everything that we think is so important in our lives. We get all caught up with our houses and furniture and clothes and sports and business and making money and our jobs and all the details of life, but what... what, uh, Isaiah is saying, and what Peter is affirming, is that all of that is extremely temporal. You may not even have it next week, but the Word of God is what abides forever, and that's what we have to focus on. That's th- this quote is being used to reinforce the priority that it's the Word of God that abides forever. And when you lose your health, when you lose a loved one, 
when you lose your home, when you lose your country, when you lose anything, the thing that stays with us forever and ever is going to be the Word of God. And so that's the emphasis here. And so as Selwyn says, the contrast is between the perishability of all mortal things and the incorruptibility of the Christian inheritance and hope. It's the incorruptibility of the Word of God. And so he quotes from this particular passage. Now, as I pointed out when we looked at this, he concludes by saying the Word of God endures forever. And the last statement in verse 25, he says, Now this is the Word which by the gospel, that's good news, was preached or proclaimed to you. Now I'm going to skip this slide and just remind us of, of something. Okay. The priority of the Word. This is where Peter's thinking is going. He's telling people, if you really want to survive life, that when it's over with, that you can look back, and when you were young and you got married and you had children, you want to live a good life, you want to be stable, you want to provide for them, what's going to anchor every detail in your life? It's going to be the Word of God. Nothing else can do it. Anything else, it will fall apart. This is the emphasis all through Scripture. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, who's talking in John 17? Jesus is talking. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God the Father. He's praying to the Father. This John 17 is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the real Lord's Prayer. It is before he's arrested at Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross the next day, and he's praying to the Father to preserve and protect his disciples and followers as they will be the nucleus of the new, organi- new organism, the church, that is going to come into existence. So how are they sanctified? How are they going to grow spiritually? Sanctification is just um, a little more antiquated word for your spiritual life. How do you grow spiritually? It's not by feeling good. It's not by uh, some sort of uh, quiet reflection and meditation on nothing, which is how it is in Eastern mysticism. Uh, It is through the Word. It's not through music. It's not through entertainment. It's not through fellowship with friends. All of those things can be good in their place. But if they replace the Word of God then you're going to fall apart because it's the content of the Word of God that shapes our thinking. So Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth. It's not a relative concept of truth. It's an absolute concept of truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth, and that's restated two verses later. For their sakes I sanctify myself, Jesus said, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Again, it comes back, it reinforces it's the Word of God. Now, we see other verses in Scripture that support this. Ephesians 1.13, it's the hearing of the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that changed the Ephesians' lives. Uh, The Philippians held fast to the Word of life, that is, the message, the content of the gospel. In Colossians 1.14, it's the Word of the truth of the gospel. Now, what else does the Bible say about the Word of God? In Hebrews 4.12, the writer of Hebrews, also talking to a Jewish uh, audience that's now become believers in Jesus as Messiah, says that the Word of God is alive and powerful. This isn't just like any other book. This isn't like reading even a religious book. It's not reading a self-help book. It's not reading a motivational book. This is a book that is written and has power to change our lives for the better because it's truth. And truth conforms to the thinking of God and the way God created the human race. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, if you look right down in front of me, there's a two-edged sword. That's the Machaira that is being referred to here. And that Machaira is sharp. Several people have noted that we now have a piece of tape over the edge. That is because you can shave with it. And we wanted to make sure that no uh, little kids ran up and sliced off a digit or two. 
So it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, Machaira was primarily used not as a fencing instrument or weapon, but as a weapon that would pierce in through the uh, armor, find a, uh, a, 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 a hole in the armor, and they would uh, pierce into a vital organ. And so that's the imagery here, that it pierces deep into the mentality of a person to the point where it can divide or distinguish between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner. It exposes what we're thinking and the motivations of our thinking. That's the phrase, the intents of our heart, the motivation of our thinking. We can't fool God about anything. We can't rationalize, justify any of our behavior. God sees to the very core of our thinking, and it's the Word of God that exposes it so that we can then uh, apply it and change our lives. Isaiah fifty-five eleven, God says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It tells us that the Word of God originates with God. It doesn't originate with man. It comes forth from God's mouth. And he says, it shall not return to me void. That means there's a purpose for the word. And if you apply the word, it will fulfill its purpose. And God says, it's, I'm giving you the word. It's not going to return to me in emptiness. It will accomplish what I please. That's what he means. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is going to accomplish what God intended it to do. Another passage is in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord. So it's compared to a sword, and now it's compared to fire. And then it's compared to a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. These are strong, powerful images. A fire burns, it illuminates, it exposes, it destroys what's on the outside to expose what's on the inside. But I tell you a passage that I want you to turn to is a passage that uh, I, I want to reference a little bit or read through, hit some high points. It's Psalm 119. Middle of your Bible in the Old Testament, Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's right next to the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's um, 176 verses. Now, the Psalm 119 is written in order to praise God's Word. And if you read through the Psalm, you'll discover that every verse uses a word that is a synonym for the Word of God. In verse 1, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is another word for the, for the Bible, for the Scriptures. Verse 2, it says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. That's another word for the Bible. Um, verse 3, they walk in his ways. That's also a term that's used as a synonym uh, for the Bible. The Bible teaches us God's ways. Uh, verse 4 uses the word precepts. Verse 5 uses the word statutes. Verse 6 uses the word commandments. Verse 7 uses the word judgments. Verse 8 again uses the word statutes. Verse 9 uses the word word. So you see, every verse takes us to say something of the value of God's word. Now, when you get out today, in a lot of places, people want to come up with oh, good ideas about how they live their life based on what their peers say, based on what their friends say, based on something that some comedian says on TV, uh, whatever it may be, they look to all kinds of sources for the, the wisdom of life. Often you find people going to psychologists, you find people going to counselors, you find them going to self-help gurus. In fact, probably 80% of a lot of pastors uh, aren't really teaching the Bible anymore. They're just teaching motivational self-help theories from the pulpit. They're teaching psychology. They're not teaching the Bible. You can't go in now, and they may say something about how important the Bible is, but are they going through the Bible like I'm going through the Bible? Are they really telling you what God says, or are they just telling stories and going off in other directions? Listen to what these psalms say. Now, I just highlighted a few verses. You can underline these. I encourage you to go read Psalm 19 uh, several times over the next week just to point out what is said. In verse 9, this is a verse I quote all the time, 
How can a young man cleanse his way? How can you straighten out your life? By taking heed according to your word. Not by taking heed according to Maslow or Jung or Freud or any of the other uh, love languages, theories that go around. It's taking heed according to your word. Not listening to motivational speakers. Uh, Bradshaw's one. There's so many you can watch on TV. Some of them have good ideas. If they're good ideas, they just stole them from the Bible without giving uh, credit. How do you straighten up your life? You take heed. You listen to God's word. Uh, verse eleven, he says, "Your word have I hidden in my heart." How do you hide God's word in your heart? You memorize it. You learn it. You you uh, work on memorizing it so that you can repeat it to yourself at different times to remind yourself of truth and absolutes. You hide the word in your mind, in your thinking. That's what heart means. It's in your mind, in your thinking, for a purpose. Not just because it's an academic exercise, but so that you won't sin. Not so that you can recover from sin, that too. But it's so you don't sin in the first place. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15 and 16. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. That means that you're going to take time to think about God's Word. Now, there's a lot of tools available today. You've got tools you can use on your computer, on your iPad, on your iPhone, smartphones, all kinds of different things. But basically, (coughs) if you don't have all of that, just have your Bible and a pad and a piece of paper. And take time every day. Start off with 15 minutes. I'll bet you anything, if you really want to know the Word, you'll start off with 15 minutes, and before long, it's not enough time. And you want to take more time. And you're going to get up. That's what happened to me. The next thing you know, I was always a late sleeper. Then I discovered I was really a morning person. Who knew? And I would get up at 5.30 because the only time I could study the Word before, after the whole day got busy was between 5.30 and 6.30. First I got up at 6, and I would have time from about 6 to 6.30 to read, and then that wasn't enough time, and I realized I had to get up at 5.30. So you meditate, you memorize, you think about, you you reflect on it, you write down your observations, go back and uh, the course that's online on how to study the Bible that's on the Dean Bible Ministries website. Listen to that. A Bible study methods class isn't so you can be a Bible teacher or a Sunday school teacher. It's to help you learn the tools to think about what you're reading in the Bible so that it makes sense to you, so that you can read it at a basic level and identify promises, understand what they mean, and write down what the what the Lord is teaching you through his word. So the psalm says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. Now, what kind of word is delight? It means this isn't drudgery. I got to go do my morning Bible reading. No, you get excited about it. You delight in it. It's not legalism. It is joy because you're learning about what God is going to do in your life and how to live to please God. I will delight in your statutes, and I'll not forget your word. I'm not going to just do this in the morning, close my Bible, shut it off, and go through life and do whatever I want to do. Verse 28, he says, My soul melts from heaviness. What's he talking about there? I'm facing difficult times. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm down. I'm unemployed. I can't find a job. I can't pay my bills. My kids are sick. I'm sick. I'm, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to some self-help techniques. Strengthen me with a good motivational preacher. Strengthen me with some good, upbeat Christian choruses. That's not what he says. He says we're strengthened according to God's Word. It's the truth of God's Word. It's content. It's orienting to reality that gives us strength to face those difficult circumstances. Then in verse 31, he says, I cling to your testimonies. I wonder if anybody has any idea what the, what the Hebrew word for cling there is. It's the same word 
that is used in describing uh, a, a married married couple that when they get married, they are to leave their parents and cleave to each other. That's the word. It's holding on to something for dear life. So I cling, I hold on to your testimonies for dear life. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank everything on your word. I'm going to gamble my whole life on your word. Lord, don't disappoint me. I'm trusting in you and you alone. Then in verses 36 and 37, the prayer is to God, incline your heart or incline my heart to your testimonies. Sometimes we don't feel like getting up in the morning and reading our Bible. We don't feel like going to Bible class at night. We don't feel like uh, really sitting down and thinking we'd rather, oh, let's check my email and let's see what happened in the news last night or all these other things. And we need to pray, God, incline my heart to your word. I remember a few times when I was a young Christian and I was a counselor at a Christian camp, and some people think it's a lot of fun. It is tiring. And I remember a couple of times I would be lying in my bunk on a Sunday right after lunch, and those kids would be getting there within the next hour or two. And I really didn't want to face any more kids. I was, it's the, towards the end of the summer, you're tired. And I would just, I would just pray, Lord, I'm going to fall asleep. And I just pray that when I wake up, my whole attitude changes. And it always would. And I, I would wake up, and, and I'd be ready to face the week and go through the whole week. So we pray for these things, that the Lord would change our focus. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness, not to grasping after things and uh, money and jobs and success. Not that those are wrong in themselves, but when they supplant our relationship with God, then they are. He says, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. What are the worthless things? The things we covet. They're not going to last. And revive me in your way. In verse 42, he says, so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. If somebody is giving you a hard time, somebody's bullying you, this is a great verse you can use to give your kids. Somebody's bullying them. Somebody's intimidating them. You feel intimidated. You're at work. Uh, bullying doesn't just take place with little kids. It, take place, it takes place in a lot of corporate boardrooms. People are, are, are you know, they, they never quite, a lot of people in this world never quite get past whatever happened in junior high. And so they're still trying to take over uh, other people. The way to handle it is to trust in God's word, not through bitterness, resentment, trying to get revenge, but by trusting in God's word and being an individual of integrity. Psalm 119, 105. How are we to think? The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to our path. The idea is that your word gives me guidance so that I can make decisions in life. I need to illuminate my life, and the only way it gets illumination is from the truth of God's Word. Verse 127, he says, Therefore I love your commandments. How? More than gold, yes, fine gold. More than anything else. It's better than success. It's better than riches. It's better than a big house. Better than a, a, a great car. It's to be desired above everything. Not that those things are wrong, but they're not going to supply what only the Word of God can supply. Verse 130 adds this idea of light. Light gives us information and truth. The entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I have seen so many people that I would classify as simple. They come out of... Uh, their, their homes, and they're not real bright. They didn't do good in school. They, they, they don't look like they're going to have much success. Maybe they don't have a high IQ. Uh, maybe they uh, have a lot of problems. Uh, maybe they have mental problems. But I've seen some people who latch on to the Word of God, and you're just amazed at how uh, somebody who just has average talents, average ability, because they focus on the Word it, it gives them a focal point of their thinking, and they excel. Uh, they're, they're like the tortoise and the hare. They're like the tortoise. 
There are a lot of people who have high IQs and a lot of great background, money, resources, education, but they don't last. They, they blow it like the hair. They're not like the tortoise. And the person who just sticks with it and plugs it out day in and day out is going to have success. Understanding goes to the simple from the Word of God, and he will excel those who have greater education. Uh, verse 176, I've gone astray. And this I thought was so interesting. What is the last verse in this long psalm? It shifts the focus. He's, he's praised the word all the way through for 175 verses. And then at the end he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. It's confession. Confession of sin. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Lord, bring me back, for I do not forget your commandments. It's a reminder. It's similar to the parables. Jesus talks about uh, the, the shepherd who loses one sheep. He <clears throat> leaves the 99 to go find the one. It's forgiveness. You look at the uh, episode of the uh, parable of the, of, of the uh, prodigal son. It is the forgiveness of God, no matter what the circumstances are. So this takes us back to what the gospel is. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's the only thing you can count on when everything else is gone. So the interesting thing here is that the words that are used. Before it was talking about the word as the logos of God, and now it uses this word rhema. And rhema also means word, but often it has the idea of a spoken word, not the written word. It has a different significance. So he's saying it's the spoken word of God that endures forever because God's word was meant to be read out loud. It was meant to be spoken and meant to be taught. Now this, he says, is the word, the rhema, which by the gospel was preached to you. There's no word for preaching here. It's just the word evangelizza. It's, this is the word or the message which was which evangelized you. And it's referring back to the gospel that gave birth to them in terms of regeneration. So as we transition to the next session, section, what he's mentioned already is that we are born again from this imperishable seed, which is the message of the gospel, the gospel of grace. It results in re our regeneration and a new life, and that new life has to be nourished. It's not going to be stillborn. It needs to be nourished, and that's going to come through growth. But if you don't feed it, with the word, then it will be stillborn. That doesn't mean they don't have; they, they're not saved. It just means they're they're not ever going to really grow and look like a saved person. There are a lot of people, who, Christians, who are stillborn because they're born again, but they never get any feeding, and they always look just like an unbeliever because they never get the truth of God's word in them. All, the only truth of God's word that they get is the gospel. So, thankfully, they're going to be in heaven but they never had the opportunity to grow because nobody ever taught them the word. So this is where we come in the first three verses of chapter 2, where Peter says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And that means if you have responded to the gospel. Now, some, the reason I put an asterisk there by laying aside is that some translations translate this as a command to put aside these things. That's not what it is saying. In fact, it's a really interesting structure in grammar that we find in a number of places. And since uh, uh, we're already down past 830, I'm going to quit here because... Uh, this gets a little too technical to cover in a rapid manner. So we'll come back and look at this. But it really opens up the meaning of this text. But the command is to crave the word. And we understand why we're to crave the word from Psalm 119. And that means to make it a priority. It's when you wake up in the morning. Now, some people don't want to eat right away in the morning. They won't eat breakfast till about 10 o'clock. 
But it doesn't matter when you get into the Word. You need to crave the Word every day. That's the priority, is to crave the Word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the centrality of your Word in our life. And we can focus on it, realize it's not an option, but it is that which makes the difference between a life well-lived and a life that is just lived for our own personal pleasure. And Father, we know that if we live our life as you would have us live it, then there will bring uh, value and glory to you for eternity, and we can uh, have stability in this life and surmount the difficulties and challenges of life, no matter what they might be. And Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study today, that we might have a renewed focus on making your word the priority, the focus, the center point of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.